Hi everyone. Uh, if you're a frequent flyer, you've heard the pre-flight instruction spiel uh, more times than you can count. Fasten your seatbelt, seat backs up and tray tables in the upright and locked position. No smoking, store your luggage in the overhead bin or underneath the seat in front of you. Find the nearest emergency exit in the event uh, of an emergency. Follow the lights on the floor to find that exit. Like, and the, here was always my favorite, especially back in the day when there was a, a, an eerie to Philadelphia flight. For those of you not from here, this was just a flight over the wide state of Pennsylvania. They would say, in the event of a water landing, uh, there's a life jacket beneath your seat. And I always thought, if we have a water landing on this flight, like we've got much bigger problems. Anyway, I, I was thinking about this as we were uh, flying over the Atlantic Ocean this summer with my family. I started to think, you know, I wonder how many of those instructions that I've heard a hundred times that I'd be able to recall if this sucker took a, a nosedive into the middle of the Atlantic. Like, would I remember where the little life vest is? And, and, and if it didn't inflate, could I find that long straw thingy to you know, blow in there to manually inflate my vest? Would I be able to put into practice all that I've learned or, or largely ignored? Or <laughs> were they just a bunch of words that went in one ear and out the other? You see, there's a big difference between learning about something and actually doing it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in the final week of this series called Growing Our Church Family. And we've been talking specifically about a, a bit of a counterintuitive idea that Jesus grows his church not by marketing campaigns or, or influencers, but by connecting people together in meaningful community, in this new spiritual family that in many ways is more intimate and sometimes more important than even our biological families. And so Jesus grows his church. And I know it's a little out of vogue these days, but we, we shouldn't be afraid of or apologize for a big growing church. Jesus never shied away from drawing big crowds and neither will we. But we like to say at Grace, we wanna grow big and small at the same time because it's in these smaller communities that Jesus is formed in us. It's in smaller communities that we stay on track spiritually. And around here we call these smaller communities life groups. And so we've been challenging you all month to get in a life group or maybe even step up and lead a life group. And if you want more information about either of those things, you can visit our website over at whoisgrace.com slash life groups. And I would just ask, there's been a, quite a, an influx of interest, and so please give our teams time to get back to you. But there's still time to, to do both of those things today. We'd love to see 20 or so more groups start during this next season. Now, in this series, we've said that you're not just called to rows, but to circles, and that you're not just called to believing, but to belonging. And today, we want to introduce this idea that you're not just called to hearing, but to doing. Let me say it more precisely in today's big idea. Discipleship calls you beyond hearing God's word to actually doing it. And so we're going to look at two passages today. One is in Matthew 7, 24. The other is in the New Testament book of James, chapter 1. You can get to Matthew 7 first. Now, in America, we make this big deal about being in church. We say things like, are you going to church? Or I need to get to church. Or to get my family to church. Or I got to get my kids in church. Or were you raised in church? And the idea is, if you just get yourself to the building, you can check the box. But, but did you know this? God doesn't take attendance. You know why? Because sitting our butts in these seats on Sundays was never God's goal. Sometimes we judge our whole spiritual life by, if I got my butt in a seat, but, but just getting to church is not what it's about. Some of you know this firsthand. Some of you were raised in a family that never missed church. 
But, but then on Monday to Saturday, you were looking for any evidence whatsoever that church was making even the slightest bit of difference in real life. Everybody hated each other's guts during the week, but, but doggone it, you know, we're going to church on Sunday. It's a ridiculous notion to go to church and to go to Bible study and to listen to sermon after sermon if nothing ever changes as a result. It only matters if what I'm hearing actually translates to what I'm doing, to how I'm living. And so I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, Jesus wrapping up his, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is his big conclusion, his big crescendo. This is what he wants people to walk away with. I want you to listen to Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Okay, listen, there's Sunday morning church right there. We're hearing the words of Jesus, but look at the next three words. And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Okay, again, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's looking to a big crowd and he says, I appreciate you all being here and I appreciate you all listening to my sermon. But if you just hear my words, and even if you believe them, and even if you're convicted by them, but, but if you believe them and don't put them into practice, you are foolish. You're building your life on no foundation. When the storms come, you're gonna crash. Your marriage will crash. Your finances will crash. You'll crash morally. You'll crash your relationships. You'll crash your kids. You'll crash your physical and mental health. Why? Because you were just hearing and not doing. But on the other hand, he says, if you put my teachings into practice, if you hear them and then do something about it, the, the storms are still gonna come for you, but your life won't come crashing down as a result. But the key is hearing and doing, and that's what makes the difference. We, we can't be content until we're acting on the things that we learn. Anybody have uh, like a stair stepper or a treadmill in your basement? Do you remember how good that felt when you were setting that sucker up? Like, does, does anyone have one of those pieces of equipment that now are in your basement holding boxes for a living or, or really expensive clothes racks? Yeah, I mean, you, you practically felt the pounds coming off just setting that thing up. But, but there are zero pounds coming off until you actually get on there and use it. There's another passage in James 1, 22 to 25. This book, James, was written by a guy named James. Thank you, seminary degree. But this particular James was special. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Now imagine growing up with Jesus as a brother. Like that would have its pros and cons. James probably spent a good amount of energy during his childhood asking Jesus to like multiply, you know, the chicken nuggets and stuff like, hey, you know, hey, can you make this 20 piece, uh, 10 piece into a 20 or whatever. James is talking about now in his letter what a true relationship with Jesus looks like, a subject he's a bit of an expert on. And his main point is this, that true faith in Christ is always gonna be evidenced by our actions. Christianity is measured not by church attendance, but by your actual life. Let's look at our text in James 1, 22 to 25. I'm gonna read this in the NIV. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now I wanna stop right there and for, for a moment and just consider what James is saying. He's saying it's possible to think, 
I drove into the church parking lot, I sang some songs, I heard a message, and boy, I'm really growing spiritually. But he says, if it just stops at listening, you're deceiving yourself. It's a, it's a form of self-deception. How? Well, he says, hearing only gives us a false sense of spiritual progress. You can underline in your Bible, maybe even get real spiritual and use a highlighter in there, maybe even start tearing up at one of the worship songs, and you can feel really spiritual. But he says true spiritual progress only comes when you start acting on all of that, when you start doing what the Word of God says. James gives his own example in, in chapter 1, verse 26, with a man who claims to be religious but who does not bridle his tongue. James says he deceives himself, self-deception, and his religion is worthless. What does he mean? Obedience is the only measure of spiritual progress. Hearing it isn't enough. Now, let me just pause and encourage some of you who are new to the whole church scene. Like if this is your first step spiritually in a long time, like being here in the building or watching online or watching on TV actually is progress for you. You're like, man, I, I made the effort to come today and this guy's already you know, guilt tripping me and, and ripping me a new one here. No, 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 I admire you so much. You, you showed up today when you could have slept in, you could have gone shopping, you could have gone out to breakfast. And so man, I'm gonna cheer you on today. This is an important step. What James is saying is that being here is the starting line and not the finish line. This passage is for those who have been a Christian for a while, who have been listening and hearing and hearing and listening and aren't doing anything about it. James goes on in verse 23 by using an analogy. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now it's kind of a little funny analogy, but, but, but think about what he's saying here. He's saying these hearers only, they look and they see what's wrong in their lives, but they don't do anything to fix it. And so he says, there's a man and there's a mirror. And by the way, this illustration wouldn't work with a woman because if a woman looks in a mirror and if something doesn't look right, doggone it, she's going to work it out. She's not leaving that mirror until things get fixed. And so, so it's, a, it's a dude. And, and imagine a dude looking at himself in the mirror. He sees he's got some work to do <laughs> to make himself presentable. But, but instead of doing anything, he just heads out the door anyway. He forgets what he saw. He must be a bachelor. Maybe he had stubble on his face. Maybe he slept uh, wrong on his hair. Maybe his zipper's down, whatever. But he's late for work, and so he just rushes out the door. The mirror showed him the problems, but he didn't take the time to fix them. And James calls this foolishness. He says, if you see something wrong, and you just walk away without changing anything, it's folly. And in the real world, you don't get credit for what you see in the mirror. You get credit for what you do with what you see. You don't go to work every day looking like you just woke up. And your boss is like, hey, Joe, you know, we don't wear baseball caps to sales meetings, right? Or, or like, Joe, for the third day in a row, like, put some pants on or whatever. You, you wouldn't go to work and just say to your, so, your coworkers, like, hey, guys, you know, would you just pray for me? Uh, I, I really need to put on some pants tomorrow. Like, would you pray for me to brush my hair? Would you pray that I can take a shower tomorrow? They'd be like, you don't need prayer, man. You just, just do it. Like, when we hold up the mirror of the Word of God to our lives, we can't just walk away unchanged. James says the man walks away from the mirror and he forgets what he sees. Don't be fooled. This is not a memory problem. What he has here is a priority problem. 
He doesn't think that changing his life to match God's word is important enough, and so he doesn't do it. Now, here's the flip side. Here's the punchline. Look what James says in verse 25. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, there's the mirror of scripture, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. There's the promise. They will be blessed. This is the joy and the satisfaction of living out your life by God's design. Anyone want to have a blessed life today? James says the blessed life is reserved for those who don't just hear the word of God, but who act on it, who live out the word of God. Not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. A doer of the word of God is always making corrections, is always making adjustments to make sure that their life lines up with the word of God. If the mirror of God, God's word reveals that you have pride in your heart, then a doer will partner with Jesus to live humbly. If the mirror of his word reveals bitterness or resentment in your heart, the doer will seek to be more forgiving. If the mirror reveals that you need to be more caring, a doer of the word will seek to live more compassionately, all with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is the main resource given to us to help us put God's word into action. But listen, there is one other important resource. It's an important resource that's been given to us to help us to avoid self-deception, to assure that we're actually living out what we're learning, to access the blessed life James promises. You know what that resource is? It's the concern and encouragement and accountability that comes from other Christians. You and I need to be able to take the things that we learn in our devotions or the things that we've heard in a sermon and we need to bounce them off some people and say, here's what I think God is speaking. What should I do about it? And a group like that makes all the difference. And the conclusion of these two passages is very clear. The faithful Christian life is reserved for those who don't just hear the word of God, but who live out the word of God. These people are called disciples of Jesus followers of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus. And this process of spiritual progress is called discipleship. And so I wanna get really practical and talk today about five ways that you are discipled in your life group. Ways that a, a group helps to move us past being just hearers to being doers of the word. Here's the first way. A life group helps you follow the scriptures. Groups, you see, help us to take what we hear and put it into action. You know, spiritual growth doesn't come from sermons. These are important, and I put a lot of time and effort into them because I know they have an important place. But as I've said before, I'm under no pretense that you're gonna actually remember much of what I say uh, on here this week or, or, or that these words are gonna somehow change your life in an ongoing and profound way because most spiritual growth doesn't come through lectures. At best, it might help to shape your thoughts. It might help to motivate you to take a step. But it's in a group where we can consider these teachings. We can consider the scriptures. We can look some other people in the eye across the room and we can figure out what are we gonna do about this? Pastor Stuart Briscoe was, was teaching a class on the practical principles of Bible study and he was showing the, the, the class how to pick out the promises and the commands in the scriptures as they were reading along and, and then what to do with them. And finally, he, he was reviewing and he asked the class, now, what do you do with the commands in the Bible? And this uh, little lady raised her hand and she said, I underline them in blue. <laughs> 
And I just want you to know today, underlining the Bible's commands in blue might make for a colorful Bible, but the point of the commands in the Bible is not that we underline them, but that we follow them, that we obey them. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 5, that the goal of our instruction of a time of a teaching like this is not more knowledge. It's not to become more mentally competent. The goal of our instruction, he says, is love. Not becoming better with Bible trivia, but, but, but it's when you see someone in your life that's struggling, you reach out to them. It's when somebody screws you over that you forgive them. It's when your situation seems hopeless that you walk forward with un, unwavering faith. And so if you're in 10 Bible studies, like you, if you're memorizing the book of Leviticus, if you have Francis Chan quotes on post-it notes covering your car dashboard, and at the same time, you're, you're less patient and you're more anxious and you're more judgmental or you're more prone to anger, it's not working. And so the way our life groups work is that you have access every week at whoisgrace.com read to, 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 to some curriculum, to some scriptures and some questions that are gonna help you to wrestle through and live out what is discussed in the sermon, making the Bible applicable to your real life. The second thing that happens is a life group helps you fuel your spiritual disciplines. Now this isn't rocket science, but, but one of the key ways that we follow Jesus is through simple spiritual disciplines, like the, the things that connect us to him, like Bible reading and prayer and solitude and Sabbath and serving. Like this is how we tap into the power and the presence of God on a regular basis. And do you know how much easier it is to stay on track with these spiritual disciplines when you have a group of people who are regularly asking you about it. How's your prayer life? What are you reading these days in the Bible? Did you have a Sabbath rest this week? Like when I know those questions are coming, I'm motivated to come to group with some good answers to them. Spiritual progress comes through spiritual training, you see. So, so like these disciplines. And, and this is true of anything that we want to be competent at. Like if you look at those people who are really good at musicians, uh, musicianship or, or athletics, like you're going to find that those people are doing certain things over and over and over again every single day. Not tons of things, but a few things. Athletes have a regimen of exercise every morning, a certain kind of stretching, a certain kind of weight training, whatever it is. And musicians, they will do a certain thing every day again and again and again. They'll do scales. They'll do major scales. They'll do minor scales. And they'll do it over and over again. Why? Is it because they're planning to play scales at the next concert? No, no, no. It's because those small disciplines help them to stay on the top of their game and to stay current with their craft. And so whether it's Chopin or Beethoven or Charlie Puth, when they sit down to play, they can play freely. They're not waiting for some spontaneous inspiration to kick in because they've been doing scales every day and they're ready to play freely. The freedom flows from the discipline. And so if our craft as disciples of Jesus is to walk with him, to be in a relationship with him, to become more and more like him, then the spiritual disciplines help us to do the same thing. They keep us current. They keep us on top of our game. They help us to be free when the moment of truth comes. And so when temptation comes, when the, the, that pressure-filled situation comes, when that parenting crisis comes, we can respond confidently because we know the heart of God. We, we, we've, we're dialed in. We, we know how Jesus would respond. Why? Because of a spontaneous lightning bolt of inspiration? No, because I've been in the Word every day. And I talk to Jesus every night. My discipleship walk is current. 
When, when the moment comes, for example, when that coworker says, hey, you know, I've been noticing, I've been meaning to ask you, why are you a Christian? Like, I'm amazed at how many people will go, well, when I was nine, you know, I went to church and I prayed a prayer or whatever. No, guys, your walk with Jesus needs to be current. You know what's gonna get that coworker's attention? Is if you say, let me tell you, yesterday, it was going all wrong for me. But because of Jesus, here's what, or, or here's, here's the wisdom from his word that I learned last night that, that totally shifted my perspective on this thing that I'm going through today. See, the point of spiritual disciplines is to be free in the moment, to be able to love God, to be able to listen to God, to be able to love people, to, to know the heart of God in such a way that when the moments of life come, you're free to act as Jesus would act as if he was in your place. And so in a life group, when we have people who can help us to keep our passion white hot for, for these disciplines, the disciplines that are helping us to be more like Jesus, it's a powerful thing. The third way that you're discipled in a life group is a life group helps you to develop your spiritual gifts. One of the things I love about groups is that they're a microcosm of the church. They also become kind of a training ground, almost training wheels for people to, to use their spiritual gifts. And so if someone has the gift of hospitality, like before they're hosting thousands of guests at Christmas at the Warner, they're hosting a life group at their house and they're getting comfortable with that gift. Before people with a gift of teaching or teaching a theology class at, at, at the Grace Leadership Institute, they're leading a study for their life group of 15 people. And they can get feedback on their effectiveness, what worked and what didn't work from people who love them. They can get a taste of what it feels like to be used by God in that moment. Before someone's organizing a department of our, of our kids' ministry, they're organizing who's bringing food to the next six months of life groups. And in that group, then, we can encourage and we can hone one another's spiritual gifts. In a group, you can speak up and say, hey, guys, I've been asked to step onto this board of this organization in the community. I've been asked to serve in this need in the city, or I've been asked to fill this role at church. What do you guys think? And now it allows everyone who's seen us exhibit those gifts to speak into our development of those gifts. We, 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 we really encourage our groups at Grace to share leadership. In other words, yes, there's a leader of the group, but it's not the leader's job to do everything. In every group, there should be kind of some mutual assessment, like who's the best person to lead discussions, who, and they should lead the next time, or who are the people who have the gifts of mercy and compassion, that they should be the ones in charge of checking in on group members during the week, coordinating meals when somebody's sick or has a baby or moves into a new home. And the hospitality people, they should be the ones hosting the group in their homes, rolling out the red carpet as everyone arrives. Intercessors are the ones making sure people are prayed for, making sure our, the missionaries that the group has adopted know that we're lifting them up and sending care packages. The fellowship people are planning the group outings, taking the kids to the park and coordinating tickets to the next baseball game. The evangelists are, are making sure that, that we're sharing God's love with people outside the group who don't know Jesus yet or making sure that we're doing servery together. You see how this works? This is shared leadership, which means you don't come to group as a spectator, you come to group as an active participant. You have a role to play, because part of our discipleship is learning to use and develop our spiritual gifts. Now, if you're in a group where the leader's trying to do everything themselves, you, you have my permission to call them out. Just say, hey, we're all supposed to be involved here, so what can I do to help? And even if they're kind of a control freak, they're gonna be grateful in the end that they don't have to do all the work. And so we're discipled in groups as I'm causing problems. As we follow the scriptures 
as we fuel the disciplines, as we develop our gifts, here's the fourth way. A life group helps you endure your trials. This is really an important truth about how true spiritual growth happens. If I were to have all of you look back at your life, write down two or three times when you experienced the most intense spiritual growth, most of you would have on that list at least one trial or hardship because God often uses painful experiences to help us grow. But that growth doesn't just happen automatically because, see, some people are crushed by hardships. We only grow through them when we have people around us who will help us to process and who will talk and who will cry and who will speak the truth. See, here's the thing. The people who are closest to you during these times of trial will largely determine how healthy you are when you come out the other side. We need each other to help frame what God is up to, to make sense of it all, to support us as, as we walk through that time. Remember our passage earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said the storms are coming for everyone. Christians aren't protected from the storms. But it's the one who hears these words of mine and does them, those are the ones who are on solid ground. And it's not easy to stand strong, to have faith during storms. But we can endure them when we have people around us who will remind us of God's goodness, who will share their lives with us, who will be generous with us, who will bring us meals, who will help us to lean into the teachings of Jesus during times of difficulty because it often won't come naturally. You might be in a new job with a boss who's a jerk. You might have a, a rough stretch of personal financial mess. You, you might be going through the pain of a broken heart. No matter what it is, it calls for a deeper and more obedient walk with God. And the pathway to that deeper walk involves rich Christian community. See, see, we always have good intentions to be strong when hardship comes, but being in a group helps you to take your good intentions and to put them into practice. Finally, the fifth way a group helps you to, to disciple you is that a life group helps you fulfill your mission. Groups are really good for hanging out together. They're really good for having food together. They're, they're also pretty good about breaking open the Bible and learning new insights together. But what doesn't come quite so naturally is maintaining an outward focus. Because it's very tempting to turn totally inward for a group, us for no more mentality. But being on mission as a life group means that you're getting out into your neighborhoods and you're really caring about your unchurched friends. It means seeing your role at work and at play and in family life as an ambassador of God, as a minister of reconciliation. It means sharing your faith and serving our community. It means maintaining a global focus on what God is up to in the world around us. Maybe, maybe even several members of the group taking a short-term missionary trip out of the country while the rest of the group prays and encourages and, and financially supports. But one of the great gifts of a, of a group environment is extra sets of eyes to help you see where you, where you fit into God's story. What's your calling? How are you uniquely positioned to serve God with your life? Where are you being challenged to shine the light of Christ in your spheres of influence? I just know that God has positioned Grace Church right now to have tremendous influence for the cause of Christ in our region. Like we have so many leaders of so many sectors of our society who call Grace their church home, from people in media and to politics, to business and industry, to the social sector, to education. It's amazing how God has postured us for spiritual impact. 
And when it comes to being missional, like life groups are what allows you to do things together that you may not have the guts or the resources to do alone. Some years ago, I remember one of our groups decided to pull some money together and to, to buy gift cards uh, to one of the grocery stores in an under-resourced section of town during the holidays. And then they all went together to that store and, 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 uh, and they blessed people with their gift of generosity. They watched people's reaction who were, who were just scraping by and now all of a sudden had free groceries for that important and stressful week. Another simple concept I'd encourage your group to consider is what we've called the empty chair. Like when your group meets, just always set up one extra chair and just let it sit empty during the course of your gathering. And let that chair be a constant reminder for each group member to pray for a person who could be sitting in this circle, in this group, but isn't yet. It's a constant reminder that your group exists always to bless others. And that there's an open invitation for people who need Jesus to be part of your circle. See, a life group helps you to, to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer also. A group is where the rubber meets the road for your faith journey. A group encourages you to live out what you say you believe. To be a disciple of Jesus by helping you to follow the scriptures, to fuel your spiritual disciplines, to develop your spiritual gifts, to endure your trials, and to fulfill your mission. And I'm gonna wrap up by saying something that's gonna sound weird coming from me, but I really do believe it. Here's what I have to say. Sermons can be dangerous, both for you and for me. John Morrison, Morissette puts it, his finger on it in an article where he said, sermons can provide an environment for feeling spiritual without actually being spiritual. So, so as a pastor, I can feel really spiritual when I stand up here and proclaim God's word. It can be exhilarating. But, but preaching isn't the essence of true spirituality. There's an enormous difference between preaching God's word and practicing God's word. And the danger of sermons for me is that I can easily turn into a professional talker, <laughs> prescribing for others what I'm unwilling to live for myself. And believe me, there isn't a Sunday that goes by that I don't feel that tension and feel deep down like I'm always preaching beyond the level of, of my own obedience. It's a tension, but that's the danger for me. Here's the danger for you. It's that you can just as easily become professional hearers. Sermons can provide an occasion for you to feel spiritually, or to feel spiritual without actually being spiritual. The danger is that you become spectators, passively listening to God's word while feeling no obligation to do what it says. You can walk out of here today and think, well, that was a good sermon, or probably more likely, that was so-so today, and, and then that's it. You just go on with your day. The danger is that you become uh, window shoppers who, who gaze through the glass at the wisdom of God's word, looking at following him from the outside and yet never really making a commitment to pay the price of discipleship. See, the answer for us, both in facing this temptation, the, both you and me, the answer is community. The answer is life groups. It's those people in our lives who will help us to implement what we're learning or saying. It's our anti-hypocrisy team. It's people who will help us to, to not settle for being superficial Christians. Some of us have spouses and immediate family who help us with this. I know I do. Kim has said before, if people only knew how humble we keep you at home. <laughs> but I need even more of that, and so do you, to help us to not just be talkers of the word, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. We need groups. 
And so I'd encourage you to take that step today. Join one or lead one. I love you guys. I pray this series has been helpful. And next weekend, I'm so excited, we're beginning a brand new series on the Gospel of Mark. It's gonna take us all the way into 2025. It's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. I'll see you then. Love you guys.